Hey everyone, welcome to the Power Passion Podcast. Larry couldn't make it today because he's got some very busy things, but I've got some questions that he's asked for me on um, on my on his behalf, obviously. And I've got the uh, I've got Dave Robertson here, who is an author of the Intelligence Trap. I'm sure you've got a copy of the book. That you can you can throw yeah, it so here it is. Yeah, Brilliant. thanks for having me. No, yeah. absolutely. I was really excited to have this chat because it's a very extensive book. I suppose we could start off with what you feel as though is um, the ever-changing definition of intelligence as it applies to human beings with, you know, the, the technological innovation that's occurred over the, you know, the last, uh, you know, 20 to 30 years and how I suppose everyone needs to be more adaptive with that uh, robust uh, general intelligence and tact and knowledge. Yeah, 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 totally. So, I mean... Our kind of definition of intelligence that we still use today is really born in France at the end of the 19th century. So, you know, it's quite old and not necessarily very applicable to life today. Um, so that idea of general intelligence was really, um, it was designed with schools in mind to try to predict people's academic achievement. And it really looked at kind of the basics of abstract reasoning. So, you know, those kind of visual spatial puzzles, numeracy, the size of your vocabulary, you know, all really important elements of our thinking. And, um, and you know, since we kind of came up with that definition of intelligence and designed tests to measure that intelligence, um, it has actually really replicated very well and has been shown to be really important in lots of areas of life, um, mostly in education, but also in your job performance in lots of careers, but especially those that require kind of complex information processing, like um, medicine or um, the law or science. So, you know, I don't want to bash kind of that idea of general intelligence as this, um, as this kind of um, abstract thinking and, and memory and learning. That is very important. But the problem is that um, it doesn't, our standard measures of intelligence don't test how well you applied that brain power. And that's really, I think, where the problems arise, especially with technology, with things like um, Twitter and Facebook spreading fake news, you know, all of these kind of um, new ways that we can be fooled and duped by the information around us. Um, the standard measures of intelligence don't really measure our susceptibility to those kinds of errors. Absolutely. When it comes to misinformation, we've spoken off camera about the fact that you, a person can actively go out of their way to search upon information which is contradictory to their worldview in order to gain a more balanced perspective, but it actually works uh, alternatively, right? It doesn't, doesn't work to an objective truth standpoint to which everyone really wants to get it at. It, it does, does the opposite, correct me if I'm wrong, is, or is something along those yeah, lines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's totally true. So uh, what we call that is motivated reasoning. And that's where you kind of have this preconception or belief. Often it might be really central to your identity. So it might be your kind of, um, whether you're left or right wing might be really important to how you see yourself as a person. Um, now the problem is that with that in mind, we then just use our intelligence to, uh, like you said, to just search for the information that kind of confirms those preconceptions. And if we come across information that um, might question them or throw them into doubt, we just apply our intelligence to kind of demolish those arguments without really looking at the strength of the evidence in a more rational kind of way. Um, so in this way, you can see how you're dismissing anything that questions your beliefs and rational, rationalizing and just accepting anything that supports your beliefs. 
and that actually um, means that you, it is one of the kind of engines behind this kind of political polarization that we see today. So um, on issues such as climate change, where actually the scientists studying climate change have a really strong consensus now that human emissions are causing climate change. Um, what you see actually is that there are lots of very intelligent um, right-wing people mm. who would question that evidence and actually the more intelligent they are the more likely they are to deny that consensus view of the scientists exactly. so that's really worrying you can have intelligent people on both sides actually like moving further apart in their analysis of something that should be a purely scientific issue it comes comes to the point like you said it's a purely scientific issue there needs to be a, a vast data set which is analyzed and it it can't be one side or the other of you know the political spectrum or, or an argument spectrum i suppose no. because everyone's trying to outdo themselves they're trying to have that moment where they're like yes i got i got it and i've supported my my worldview and my cognitive bias to an extent yeah. it's really interesting because a lot of the the climate change studies that have been done over the past few years i mean yeah you could say cherry pick but even the person that wants to prove that the studies have been cherry picked they'll use just the portion of data that was excluded and not the portion of data that was included so they kind yes. of they pick and choose and it's really it's it's uh, it shows i suppose the uh the way in which we need to fact check and, and i suppose be held accountable to to making uh broad statements which affect the global populace especially when it comes to climate change yeah that's totally right and so if we stick with climate change as the example you know i think i read a study that showed that actually uh, it's like a big meta-analysis that had tried to like review all of the studies out there and I think 97% of them uh, support the idea that human emissions are causing climate change and you know you have 3% that maybe uh, didn't fit that narrative but the vast amount of evidence still supports it but people who because of their kind of worldview and their initial beliefs want to deny that broad consensus would just cherry pick those kind of three percent that don't give such a clear picture um but i mean i think like this goes far beyond just climate change you also see this kind of polarization in things like gun control and um on views on things like um fertility treatments or abortion you know all of these really emotional issues mm. um and in each case you actually see that education and intelligence rather than helping people to kind of come to a consensus opinion because they're looking at the evidence rationally and dispassionately instead intelligence and education actually just increase the polarization so in that way your intelligence is more like a tool for propaganda rather than truth seeking in the I way you might say that there's there's an emotional polarization to these topics to which a person can uh, draw an argument conclusively to to the conclusions that they want based on whatever evidence they want to draw from and then yeah. I suppose trigger a response because obviously yourself you've got some experience in journalism and when it comes yeah. to the most clicked on the most uh, read articles I'm sure uh, something that gets you know outrage or uh, hatred anything with those kind of topic lines gets more clicks I suppose and it, it was probably a little bit less entertaining to read a piece that is very objective very neutral but at the same time this is like you said it says two ends of uh, of a different of the same coin and um that there's just very polarizing and a very emotional topics to which you can i suppose garner a lot of support and um you know i suppose to the latter you can you can have some disagreement on on a topic say for instance like climate change or abortion or anything like that yeah. when, it, when it comes to this book 
what was obviously your, your journalist uh, experience and um, you've uh, you've been writing it for quite some time right so what was the, right. the defining moment because a lot of your work would obviously bleed into the book and was there I suppose a time where you were writing a piece where you thought to yourself well hey okay I've I've been studying this but am I am I finding objective truth in what I'm writing I suppose was, was there any moment like that yeah 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 totally so actually the kind of genesis of the book was um quite it was kind of there was no single defining moment I guess but it was kind of a big build-up before I finally realized there was a kind of story I wanted to tell there but that was actually it came from my experience as a science journalist where I would be interviewing you know these kind of Nobel Prize winners or you know like geniuses within their fields and then I would also kind of come to hear that apart from having like these kind of brilliant minds in one domain yeah. they actually also had these really odd views in other areas of their life so um there was this guy called Kerry Mullis who won the Nobel Prize for coming up with the uh like polymerase chain reaction and I won't really explain what that is but it's kind of fundamental to all genetic testing so it's kind of revolutionized medicine but then in his autobiography he also talks about um how he was abducted by like this um glowing raccoon and he <laughs> believes in astrology and yeah. thinks astrology is a better predictor of like uh human behavior than psychology mm. um and more troublingly he is an AIDS denialist so he uh completely denied the fact that the HIV virus could cause AIDS yeah um so you know it's kind of strange to me that someone could have could be so intelligent in one area but could also kind of have all of these wacky views that just aren't supported by evidence and it was just hearing that kind of story that made me uh, kind of want to write the book and to probe the psychology of like why that might be uh, but I would say that having written the book and especially during the research it did make me start to question my own views and the way I write my own articles and just made me think be a little bit more conscious about whether I was suffering from that motivated reasoning where I could be kind of cherry picking stuff just to uh, just to kind of fit my own initial biases and just on that there was there's a, a, a many that you know Nobel Prize winning laureates and and academic figures and experts that you mentioned in the book that I suppose once they've won an award for a specific scientific theory or anything that they professionally put a lot of time and effort and, and a, a huge portion of their life into they there will be another discovery that kind of I suppose, you know, it, it ruins that, that, that work of theirs. And they, they kind of are grappling at straws. They, they're going, oh, what can I do to, to make sure that this, is, is, this part of my life is, remains constant? But the important part about it is, as human beings, we need to be intellectually humble and to admit yeah. that, you know, that we, we don't know everything and that we're constantly learning on the daily. And it's impossible to know everything because if if you assume that you knew everything, then I'm sure you'd come undone in, in one way or the other. Yeah, 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 totally. So I guess intellectual humility is really one of the kind of um, philosophies that kind of guide the later chapters of my book, because there's so much good psychological research now showing that uh, people who are intellectually humble in the way you describe and who are able to kind of question their own knowledge and assumptions, even uh even if it kind of does bring down their worldview to a certain extent or you know like question their kind of lifetime's work uh, mm -hmm. people who have that kind of intellectual humility do tend to score better on all kinds of decision making um so you know when if we're talking about things like politics you know they're just much more likely to appraise the 
research kind of rationally rather than allowing their kind of previous convictions to, to shape their uh, points of view. So they reduce that kind of polarization that we've been talking about. But actually intellectual humility is so important also in uh, kind of education because people who are more intellectually humble do kind of, they actually learn better. They learn more facts because they are always kind of on the hunt for new information. So actually what you see is that people who maybe have a lower IQ but higher intellectual humility uh, perform just as well or even better than the people with a higher IQ but low intellectual humility, uh, which I think is quite a powerful result. But actually recognizing the limits of your intelligence can be more important to your success than your actual intelligence. That, that bleeds perfectly into the next question I've got for you, David. When it comes to everything that you've written within the book and I suppose your experience in general, there is obviously a delineation to be made between real world, in, real world intelligence and practical intelligence and academia. Because there's a lot of academia these days that is, is I suppose, politicised to an extent. And it depends on what you're learning. Obviously, you know, if you're doing a medical degree, I don't think that it comes into it that much. But still, there's, there's an, an educational bubble, so to speak. And then there's a real world. I'm engaging with the world. I'm socialising with the world. I'm, I suppose, being more adaptable with the way in which I assume um, my, my existing knowledge upon existing you know experiences or whatever i'm going through in my work life professional life or, or, or relationships i suppose yeah 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 totally and so that's why like lots of researchers have tried to um define different forms of intelligence so mm. i think one of the uh most reliable uh studies or kind of theories that we have there comes from robert sternberg who's a, a kind of really famous psychologist in the uh, USA. And so he uh, kind of tries to define three types of intelligence. So there's the uh, analytical intelligence, which is basically what we've talked about is what's measured by IQ. And that, you know, is basically a very academic form of intelligence. But then he also looked at um, measuring creative intelligence, uh, which is just your kind of capacity to come up with novel and original solutions to a problem and to kind of engage in counterfactual thinking. So Imagine kind of what if scenarios in, in various different elements of your life, whether it's kind of in science or in um, technology, uh, trying to kind of just imagine what would happen if I kind of changed my product in this way, would that be more successful? Um, and finally, practical intelligence, which is, um, he talks a lot about uh, kind of tacit knowledge or implicit learning as part of practical intelligence. And that just means kind of picking up on the unwritten kind of rules say in the workplace you know how to kind of manage the people around you the kind of stuff you're not really taught and if you are taught them in a the kind of management training course it's often not that useful anyway but just kind of learning how to um to read people and to get the best out of people and to kind of plan ahead and implement your um your actions and your goals um and so he found that actually these three forms of intelligence the analytical, creative and practical don't correlate very well with each other, but each can be really important in predicting someone's overall success later in life. Speaking of intelligence, and we were drawing on, uh, I suppose, human intelligence in general, when it comes to this, there's a lot of people out there, uh, public figures or people, members of academia or anywhere in the world, I suppose, members of politics that are, I suppose, they, they argue for that, you know, intelligence within human beings is vastly better than any other species. 
Now, mm. I'm not, I'm not going to confirm or deny the existence of the Fermi paradox and whether there are actually other uh, organisms yeah. out there that are more intelligent than us. But is it, I suppose, foolish as a human being to believe that we are, that we are it, that we are the antithesis of intelligence because I suppose our experience is the only thing that can be measured because we can talk to another person. We can articulate our experiences to other people and therefore we think that we are smart. Is there, like I suppose dolphins have, have been, uh, I, I feel as though they're uh, intelligent. Uh, are there other species yeah. to, we could, I suppose, relate or, or try and measure similarities between human beings and, and other species, I suppose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting question. So I would say, you know, I'm really fascinated by animal intelligence and there has been some really great work there. Uh, so like you mentioned, kind of dolphins and whales do show lots of, um, you know, lots of signs of kind of intelligence that we would consider to be really important in human behavior. So that kind of thing, like um, uh, rational problem solving, they're actually really good at. If you give them kind of these puzzles to do, they can really kind of think their way through it in quite a logical way. Um, the same goes for um, crows. Like kind of lots of members of the Corvid family are actually incredibly intelligent when it comes you know they can create their own tools to kind of uh get food from difficult to reach places or you know they'll they've learned to kind of drop like tough to crack nuts onto the road to let traffic kind of break those shells and then they yeah. kind of swoop down to get the <laughs> so they're not just a bad omen crows they're, they're actually quite smart there you go they're not just yeah. when you see a bad, bad crow next time guys don't uh, don't be just uh, paranoid be be worried that they're very smart <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, actually, so I would say knowing how intelligent they are, I kind of get a bit more freaked out when I see a crow now because they look like sinister and kind of you think there's something kind of behind that. But <laughs> you kind of, yeah, want to watch your back when you're near a crow, basically. But, um, but in terms of like whether we are as intelligent as we possibly could be, I would say absolutely not. I mean, um, and there's two reasons for that. One would be just that you know humans haven't stopped evolving so there's always the possibility that we might evolve new cognitive traits that would be a vastly superior to our own um and the frustrating thing is it's difficult to imagine what those might be beyond just an extension of our immediate abilities so you know maybe we will have better working memory that would just allow us to process complex information uh even more quickly and um kind of in an even more sophisticated way uh, it could also be things like our theory of mind and social intelligence might improve. So we might just find it easier to understand like people's motives, you know, even if they're kind of quite more distantly connected from us. Um, so there's all of those kinds of things. But I think also there's not just the kind of evolutionary bio biological angle. I think also like our intelligence and the way we think today is very much a product of our education system and the kind of types of thinking that we have valued in education and so I think if that changed and if that kind of um, began to appreciate different kinds of traits then actually human intelligence could uh, move very rapidly in a completely different direction so you know lots of things to think about there but I certainly don't think we've reached the kind of pinnacle of what humans could achieve. No absolutely because we've got no I suppose comparison because if you want to compare You've got no one, no human species that I suppose uh, we could look at and aspire to be like that is, is vastly more intelligent than ours. I suppose historically you could go back to the Egyptians and say, uh, I suppose they knew something about, you know, architectural design and the pyramids. But at the same time, we can't compare ourselves to pre-evolved humans because we, yeah. 
by, by our terms of our, our experience, we'd say that they were largely less intelligent than what we are right now. But, you know, it's, it's very curious. Um, I'm just wondering, what's your, I suppose, take on the IQ test in general? And later on yeah. in the conversation, I want to bring up, uh, I suppose, the, the topic of AI. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not an expert in AI, but I suppose that's where it's kind of heading because we are talking about intelligence and that's, I suppose, the next frontier of what we would perceive as being intelligent. Um, yeah. Yeah. But so the IQ test, I mean... Uh, I certainly do think it kind of has its value um, and it really measures um, kind of like I was explaining earlier this kind of uh, complex information processing so just how easily you find it to kind of juggle bits of information and to understand abstract abstract concepts and to learn kind of really difficult ideas um, and it is successful at that but it's not perfect so even I think it kind of even in education it probably predicts maybe 60 or 70 percent of your success but there's still lots of room for like other factors to come in to determine how well you perform at school and when you get to the workforce again its predictive power really uh decreases quite dramatically so there it probably predicts about 30 percent of your job performance which mm. still leaves even more room for all these other factors to come in um that you know that's still a big chunk like 60 percent or 30 percent is still like really significant so absolutely i think they are useful as the kind of as one tool but you have to look at so many other elements of someone's thinking before you can get a good idea of whether they will be good in a particular role yeah certainly certainly um when it comes to to the book i just want to make reference to that again it's obviously a very large novel and it's a very well written piece is there I suppose, would you suggest your readers to read various sections at certain stages? Because it's a, it's a large con con like compilation of work, very well written. Yeah. It's because, of the, because of the way the chapters are structured, you can obviously pick and choose. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. On, your, on your, your reading ability and what you want to gauge from it. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, and that was very much kind of in my mind while I was uh, kind of planning the book and trying to come up with this structure. So I feel like there is this kind of overarching argument that you do get if you start chapter one and move to chapter 10, that, um, uh, you know, like I would hope the kind of sum is greater that the, uh, uh, yeah, it's kind of greater than the sum of its parts in a way. But certainly I would say each chapter also tries to tell an independent story that you can understand without having read the other chapters. Um, for me personally, my favourite chapters are um, chapter two, which looks at the um, the concept of rationality and how that relates to intelligence. So things like the motivated reasoning that we've discussed now and, and this kind of new test, a rationality quotient that tries to capture some elements of like logical thinking that just aren't covered in the IQ test. Um, and that's got some nice examples of uh, for example, Arthur Conan Doyle, the novelist who uh, created Sherlock Holmes and who you would imagine to be incredibly rational. Eventually in his private life, he had a, like bizarre beliefs in things like um, spiritualism and he was even fooled by this kind of hoax where he began to believe that these teenage girls had taken pictures of fairies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, it deals with that kind of mismatch and that was really fun for me to write. Um, I also really enjoyed... Uh, chapter nine which looks at kind of group dynamics and how groups of smart people can actually act really stupidly when the kind of dynamics break down yeah well, when it comes to that i was talking about rationality and, and i suppose irrationality within uh, in, intelligent people 
Yeah, does that, uh, so I, I suppose a, ver a person that's very uh, smart, does their personality play a, a factor in that, in that the person's more open, and if they're more open, then they're more suggestible to certain ideas, and therefore that kind of links towards them being irrational, uh, contextually within, I suppose, you know, believing absurd notions like the earth is flat, or, you know, that we shouldn't vaccinate our kids at a certain age, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. So actually, uh, open-mindedness makes you more rational, but only to a certain extent. So a kind of a kind of a good level of open-mindedness would improve your rationality because it kind of leads to that intellectual humility that we talked about. It means you can kind of you're willing to test ideas. You're willing to kind of look for information that might uh, disconfirm what you do believe. Uh, now the problem is when you go far beyond that um, and so you're just you don't really have any kind of bullshit filter at all and you just believe stuff uh, I don't I mean I don't know why people would believe the earth is flat like I really have no. not been able to get into that mindset well, but yeah it's like I mean, whatever yeah internet figures like yeah. Alec Jones and Alika wanting to like Sail, yeah. sail around the world to find you know the end of it or something like that but i'm not i'm not here to get into that i'm not here to get into that yeah, yeah. I, uh, but yeah no back back on irrationality and intelligence because it's really curious i suppose now i'm not saying a person that's rational or irrational has a better personality but it certainly makes them more endearing to an audience i suppose when it comes to the person yeah. that wrote sherlock holmes and i suppose you could also look at uh, hunter s thompson you know the um the uh, journalist who wrote Hell's Angels and Fear and Loathing in, in Las Vegas. Uh, yes, I'm not familiar with his work, actually. Yeah. But yeah, but definitely, um, yeah, I mean, I would say I personally would rather be friends with someone who is um, uh, rational just because, you know, the kind of the frustration of dealing with someone with this kind of weird worldview that you just can't get through to is certainly something I don't really want to mix with. But I do, I think that like you raise a good point actually, that it's like, could Arthur Conan Doyle have written his amazing books if his mind had been structured slightly differently? So, you know, maybe partly his creativity that allowed him to write the books also allowed him to kind of, um, uh, come up with these crazy theories on kind yeah. of spiritualism or fairies or whatever. You know, the two maybe do go together in that way. Yeah, maybe there's a link between irrationality and, and fictitious novels and rationality and more kind of, you know, biographical and, and factual uh, pieces of work. I want to yeah. touch, I'm not sure what your stance is on artificial intelligence, because this is, I suppose, uh, where, where it goes in the future and how fast that's going to occur and where artificial general intelligence um, lands. We are seeing, I suppose, signs with uh, various algorithms that monitor speech on social media, etc. I was just wondering your, your stance on, on how I suppose human intelligence ties to our ability to project, project and create something innovatively that's vastly more intelligent than us and whether that makes it I suppose, yeah, I, I was just wondering your, your take on AI and where it's going. Yeah, 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 that's a really good point. So I'm not really an expert on AI well, um, in that, like, I've kind of read, like, journalistic articles about it, but I don't know the kind of ins and outs of the technology. Um, but I do think, like, it is seeing, like, this incredible progress. Like you mentioned, you know, uh, there's so much AI that's just behind the scenes that we don't even realise mm. is kind of guiding 
our choices you know things like um not just like the algorithms on things like amazon but lots of ads that you might see on things like ebay are probably written by algorithms rather than real human beings and you just yeah. don't realize it. you know they're not like sophisticated it's not like writing a whole novel but um it is just it's still amazing that um ai now can have this capacity to um mimic human language in such a convincing way that we don't really even notice it um i mean yeah i would say and i do think what's interesting like you mentioned is that actually the way ai is kind of being programmed today is it's uh using these kind of machine learning algorithms that mm -hmm. kind of uh you know it's like by trial and error basically it's improving all the time and what's amazing is that actually now it's got to the point where even the humans who kind of programmed that basic algorithm don't necessarily understand exactly how and why it's making these decisions um which is kind of quite a scary thought i think that we are creating something that we don't truly understand how it's working um so yeah i mean i don't have like a, def a definitive answer on ai but i do think it's very exciting and i do think it is evolving at such a rate that um you can imagine that within our lifetimes there could be ais that can compete with humans on lots of different levels not just yeah. in one very narrow task it's, it's very, very interesting to see where that plays out, whether it's, you know, very symbiotic relationship or doomsday prediction, but yeah. that's not what we're here yeah, for. Yeah. When it comes to intelligence and human beings, I suppose, would you say that a very intelligent person has the ability to construct memories uh, from their past uh, better? So, because uh, I suppose memory reconstruction would play into abstracting information which a person's learnt, and whether that's factual or accurate or not, we'd have to check with technology to make sure that we're right but I, I would assume and it's dangerous to assume anything but i would assume yeah. that a person that's very intelligent would have a very good memory recall both short and long term yeah 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 so that's totally right i mean so uh one of the things that does correlate very well with uh measures of general intelligence of the kind we've spoken about um is kind of memory capacity uh, absolutely for things like facts um so we would call that like semantic memory you know the smarter you are in a an IQ test the easier you're going to find it to kind of learn a new language or i don't know uh kind of memorize um hamlet off by heart but um but for our own kind of personal autobiographical memories yeah i'm not so sure if there is there probably is a correlation i would say like yeah. more intelligent people probably are more likely to have richer autobiographical memories but everyone like smart and you know stupid alike um suffer from these uh false memories where we just reconstruct memories kind of from fragments of or like uh you know maybe from a film we've seen or a story we've read but we kind of incorporate it into our yeah. own autobiography so that we uh yeah so that we come to believe an event that didn't happen and i i definitely have not seen any evidence that really intelligent people are any less susceptible to that than people with lower iqs fair enough you just mentioned i suppose uh, the the memory reconstruction based on things that we've seen so when it comes to pictures and, and statements so in your novel you mentioned I, I can't remember the guy's name but you mentioned there was a photo of a famous celebrity and it said that he had died he had, hadn't actually died but people were more inclined to believe in the in the statement that was made in the in the journal paper or, or article yeah. um, uh, because of the of the picture and the fam familiarity of that face and i suppose that our inclination to kind of believe through i suppose visual learning in a way 
Yeah, 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 that's exactly it. So, um, so kind of for the listeners to understand like the full kind of setup of that experiment, it was like you said that there was, um, they kind of presented pictures of celebrities like Nick Cave, someone who isn't maybe massively famous, but you know, he's an indie singer who people might have a vague kind of recollection of having kind of heard about him a little bit. Um, and they kind of just had these statements that like Nick Cave is dead. Um, and either the statement was just pure text or it was accompanied just by a stock image of Nick Cave at one of his gigs. You know, that image doesn't give you any proof of whether he's died or not because it was taken before the event. Um, but, um, but the fact is that just having that image there next to the statement made it massively more believable for the uh, participants reading the statement. And the reason is that the picture just kind of increases the... Um, vividness of the idea it's much more easy to imagine the concept of Nick Cave and we mistake that kind of um, vividness for uh, kind of being a sign of the truth mm. um, it's just uh, so the scientists talk about this in terms of the fluency of our cognitive processing so how quick and easy something is to think about uh, memorize and recall and the um, and things that are more fluent tend to be more believable and this picture just by making the kind of concept more fluent uh did indeed make it massively more believable so that to me is just a really like striking example of the ways that our kind of beliefs and statements just aren't rational and they're just based on all of this irrelevant information around it and you can totally imagine how important that is in kind of social media or the mainstream media, you know, when we're reading newspapers, how we can be manipulated by all of these tiny kind of changes to a presentation that can just uh, help to make a statement feel a lot more real than it really is. And obviously the, the persuasiveness of, of the message and how it's, how it's conveyed. Um, when it comes to your book, is there anything that you as the writer want the reader to come away with? Like if there's the biggest, if there's a big takeaway or a few takeaways, I would like to touch on that before we let, wrap up. Everyone's going to obviously get a get a copy of it. We'll include links to this in the description below. It's it's a fan, fantastic book. I, I recommend it to anyone because I feel like it really does instill this sense of of questioning your own intelligence to have a thirst for more uh, knowledge and a curiosity for the world around you. And also, yeah. So so I suppose yeah. What what's the the biggest takeaway you want your readers to get from it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say it's kind of pretty much as you've said, it's um, that I would hope that people, even if they are kind of really intelligent on paper, and even if they've always been very confident of their intelligence, would come away from the book just questioning that fact and realising that there's still lots of uh, kind of mental traits and uh, cognitive styles that they could try to cultivate that would help them to make wiser decisions in all areas of their life. And, you know, a few of those... Um, traits and thinking styles would be like curiosity you can cultivate curiosity and that improves your uh, decision making you know in, in work in business you know um, when we're talking about politics so all of these kinds of things um, intellectual humility that we've talked about um, uh, you know like social sensitivity is really important in group dynamics and it, it stops kind of teams making bad decisions if you have like a few members who just are a little bit more emotionally perceptive. Um, so I would say that really is the big takeaway for me, is that even if you've proven your intelligence or you think you've proven your intelligence, there's always ways that you can improve your thinking to become more productive and more rational and just a wiser kind of thinker and reasoner. 
That, that, the, the other thing that I love about that, David, is you do keep an open, um, I suppose, conversation to with you and your readers in that you, you are open to receiving, um, you know, Twitter messages and people can actually yeah. give you feedback. I think that's really important because you have written a book on intelligence and right. it would be one thing to write it and kind of, you know, just block yeah. everyone out. But uh, you've, you've yeah. left an open frame of uh, conversation for people to, to, I suppose, challenge your existing ideas, refine them, make them better in the, in the future and, and perhaps even publish a second, a second book. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, you know, like, like so much of the book is kind of singing the praises of being kind of intellectually humble and open-minded. And then uh, I did feel it would be really hypocritical of me if I'm like, well, I've written this book, but like no one can question it. So uh, I very much do kind of welcome people to come to my website, um, which is www.davidrobson.me to leave messages. You know, I try to respond to everyone who gets in touch and I'm really open to a discussion. All right, well, brilliant. It's been amazing talking to you, David, and we'll include all the links below that you've mentioned in the description. As per usual, guys, you can donate to the Power Passion podcast. All the money goes towards upscaling the podcast, camera equipment and, and microphone equipment. It's, it's been a real privilege to have David aboard, and thank you so much for your time, David. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much.